You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, it's wonderful to be back with you. We've got a special guest with us today, and that person is Mel Brown. Mel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, We've got so much to cover. You've written quite a few books, and um, I guess many of our audience would be familiar with you. But maybe we can just go over a bit about you and your backstory, because you know, if people look at you now, I, I read in your books that you were voted in Australia's 100 Women of Influence and you've got all these accolades, but from speaking with you in the past, I know that that wasn't always the case, right? Like you weren't always this, I don't know, this flag-waving money, um, I guess, role model for people. You had to go through it pretty tough yourself for a time there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that you said flag-waving. <laughs> I've said a picture of me as like a gymnast <laughs> doing a bit of a role. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I, look, I think it's like anything and it's part of what you, when you look at someone, you presume a lot about them. And I know certainly um, when when I write for the Herald, for example, when I, if I receive feedback, often it's, oh, what would you know? I'm sure you're from the North Shore. I'm like, really? I was born in Blacktown Hospital. Uh, so we make a lot of assumptions about people. Uh, and certainly whilst I had, have built two uh, multi-million dollar businesses, sold one of them, um, built up assets to the point um, and sold the accounting firm last year where I was able to choose whether I work or not pre-50, which was always my goal. Um, I just found that I was constantly in this sabotage loop where Mm. I just couldn't um, get out of it. And 
looking back now, Brene Brown uses this great uh, quote. So Brene Brown's a shame researcher from the University of Houston. And she talks about hustling for your worthiness. And that certainly was the case for me for a long time. I just didn't realise it. So I felt like I had to do more and create more to prove I didn't even know what <laughs> mm. and then create more. And, and it was this sabotage loop though, because it's one thing was built. I was almost straight away looking for the next thing to take my attention. Um, and it was only when I chose to start working with a coach and my thoughts were, I'll work with a business coach so that I can break that sabotage loop. And I was a member of um, entrepreneurs organization for a number of years. And in, in EO, they look at the five percenters, so both in business and personal, those things that you don't share with everyone else. And of course, it was only a couple of sessions into this coach. So I'm like, oh God, I was here for business and you're just going to want to go the personal <laughs> which I didn't love. Um, but what I came to understand is that by not facing so many things that I'd grown up with where I'd been taught like so many um, kids and so many Western Sydney kids, I think, that came from tough upbringings that you just put on the public face and shove it all down and go out there and do what you can. Um, but I just didn't face a lot of, of things that had happened, particularly traumas from when I was younger. And what I came to understand is it's the same for our finances that a lot of people are trying to do money without facing the stories that have defined them or facing the money myths and messages that they believe. And they don't understand why they're caught in a sabotage loop and they're perpetually frustrated at themselves. And so what the reason I wrote this book and the reason that I do the work that I do is to break those loops, is to rewrite those stories. And I believe through the work that I've done with myself is that if you don't start with your financial awareness, if you don't start with your story, and maybe even facing those things you didn't want to face, then you aren't ever going to be able to do money well, never mind whole of life well. Um, and it seems strange to be on a finance podcast talking about <laughs> whole of life wellness, but I truly believe that. I think that most people want a seven-step plan, but really it's, they're missing that vital first step, which is financial awareness. And I think we often don't realise how much our upbringing and our emotions impact the decisions we make today as adults with money, and we don't realise we're making this decision because of the, um, the way we grew up or the way our parents talked or dealt with money. Absolutely. And I would never have said, um, and I know not everyone has been through um, trauma, but I would never have said that the trauma that I suffered in my teenage years would have affected me financially as an adult. But what I absolutely know through the research that I've done is that it does. Um, and many of us are caught in these stories. For me particularly, it was a victim mentality around where I just didn't believe that I was enough, which is why I hustled for my worthiness, which is why I kept trying to prove um, these things. And it was exhausting. <laughs> 
Whereas now I can still choose to do all those things if I want to, but I know it's a conscious choice rather than being driven by this thing that I haven't actually faced. Um, and what I know for where I've talked to so many people about their money stories and about what they believe. And often it's not a surprise when they look at it, when they, when they acknowledge what their money story is and how they act now, they've just never been taught to recognize it or they don't realize that they can actually choose to rewrite it. Mm. Now you've, you've written a few books, which I've quoted on this, this show before. Um, one of them is unf your finances. That's the politically correct <laughs> way to do it. Um, the, the other politically correct way. <laughs> the other one um, that many people will probably know is more money for shoes. You've done a lot of work um, over the years, both online. You know, you've like you said, you've written for newspapers, and you've just done a lot in a very short period of time. But this latest mm. book that you've got, it's called Budgets Don't Work, but this does. Um, can you tell us how this book fits in alongside the others? I mean, I think you've just given us a great lot of context there with regards to it's more about the personality. Is that what, is that how you'd probably describe it? Yeah. So, and if you finances, let's use a politically correct use of it, was very much, so I created that book initially for a business chicks expo. Um, and what it was supposed to do is kind of wake people up a little bit to say, hey, it's there is a different approach that you can take to your finances. There is a different way of thinking about finances. And this book, if it's kind of the next book once you've read that to say, all right, so if you loved what I touched on in there, this goes so much deeper. Um, and it's a book that I could have written a number of years ago, but I, as someone said to me recently, you had the IP, but you hadn't done the work where you might have gone there and put yourself in as much as you did. So you didn't have that work to understand um, your own story. So you wouldn't have been able to put that in. And I absolutely agree with that. Um, so it's, as you said, it's both personality, but it's also something that I call your financial phenotype. Um, so a phenotype in nature is, the observable, and I'm so going to, this is totally my bastardization of uh, <laughs> the scientific definition, but it's the observable uh, interaction between nature and nurture in an organism. For your financial phenotype, I've uh, decided is that, again, it's the, your observable um, interaction between the nature and nurture side of you when it comes to money. So both your money story and money environment and your money type. And the reason I wrote it is whilst it's nice to know and whilst it's really helpful to know, you're not just doing it to understand more about yourself. You're doing it so that you can create bespoke habits that are right for you. And that's where I think it takes it from an interesting concept to one that will revolutionise your finances. Mm. And I think your your headline, Budgets Don't Work But This do, Does, uh, is quite provocative and definitely grabs your attention looking oh, yeah. at it. I mean, <laughs> I've got the book sitting in front of me and it, it's quite something that you'd see on the shelf at Dimmicks and go, hey, I, I actually want to have a look at this because you're always told, I mean, we talk about budgets a lot. Um, I often, I sort of try and use that, the 50, 30, 20 budget. Mm. Um, so what, what led you to sort of 
use this provocative headline and why do you think that budgets don't work? Yeah, it's interesting that you say you use the 50, 30, 20, because I talk about that in the book as one of the reasons that I don't think they work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think a lot of people are searching for that standardised approach. Mm. They want to calorie count their finances. But what I know is that budgets don't work in the same way diets don't work. They're super restrictive. You do it for a period of time. And then when that really restrictive period of time's over, you just bust out. And certainly with diets, you put all the weight on and more that you had before. Um, And I believe there's so much of an analogy between food and money. So I use that a lot. Um, So which is why that diets budgets, I think people get that concept. Mm. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't understand how much your life costs. That's (laughs) so important. Um, And I talk about that in the book. Uh, And I talk about habits that where you can um, both use different bank accounts and automate money to different bank accounts so that you don't have to use the budget. But budgeting down to the minutiae of how much am I going to spend on gifts, how much am I going to spend on hairdressing, for me, understanding what goal, understanding how much your life costs and understanding what goals you're excited about. So not um, goals your peers think you should have or your family or society, but goals you're really excited about and motivated to act on, that's more powerful than a budget could ever be. And then it's setting up the great financial habits that support those goals. Mm. Mel, um, what you're saying resonates, and and the book, having read through it, um, what you said in there resonates with me because... I meet so many people who, you know, you, you, you come across them all the time. I'm sure you do this in the buyers and accountant. They might have, you know, six-figure paychecks and yet they don't mm. save a dollar. But then you have yep. someone that's on $40,000 and saves, you know, 20%. And you're like, this is unbelievable. Absolutely. Um, and what I keep coming back to is it's not necessarily someone's level of income or even, you know, their education, even though we know that from a broader scope, it kind of influences it. What it comes back to for me is kind of people's personality and, um, you know, you can have all the great budgets and spreadsheets in the world, but actually, you know, them actually following it is a totally different thing. And, you know, I think for myself too, I think I sabotaged a lot when I was probably a late teenager too. You know, I got the fancy cars thinking that materialistic thing would bring me some type of happiness, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really until I sat back and questioned the things around me. And I think this is where your your money story or the nurture piece kind of comes into it versus maybe the money type, which is the personality. Would, it, would, it, would that be fair to say that's kind of the two, money type and money story? Yeah, so money story and money environment um, and money type, definitely. Mm-hmm. But you're right, it's, it is understanding that, you know, especially in our comparison culture where you look across and, oh, well, they've got that and they're at my age and stage, maybe I should have that too. Um, and we all carry around a personal spending device in our pocket that used to be a phone, um, where we're on social media following people who are being gifted products that we're then compelled to buy. And that's that nurture versus nature. It's both the money story you're telling yourself around what you should have and where you should be at and what success looks like for you versus uh, your nature, which, as you said, might be that those compulsions around how you innately behave. 
Um, and in the book, I talk about the marshmallow test to kind of illustrate that a little bit, where it's that well-known test where was researchers placed a marshmallow in front of uh, kids and then said, right, when I come back, if you eat a marshmallow, um, we'll give you another one. And some kids, no problem. But what they found as they watched is they would use distracting techniques. They'd sing or they'd hide under the table so they didn't have to look at the marshmallow. <laughs> um, or they'd face away, whereas some kids just ate it. Um, or if you put two kids in the room, they would either encourage one another not to or one would encourage the other kid to eat it to make you feel better. And so that's often both the innate way we behave around self-control and whether we have a propensity to have high self-control or if we're hopeless and need to set up a money environment that's right for us. Or are we surrounding with people who are encouraging to eat our financial equivalent of the marshmallow? Or are we with people that are saying, you know what, think of your future self as well as enjoying today? Um, and encouraging you to have good habits. So that's the, the confluence of the nurture and the nature. And I think in that marshmallow test, if you think of the financial equivalent of the marshmallow, you can start to think about, huh, yes, there are absolutely things and people or moments in my life where I'm encouraged to eat my financial equivalent. <laughs> and how can I minimise that? Or how can I amplify the effects of those that do encourage me towards the goals that I want to set for myself? Mm, and it's like that if you actually take a step back and look at your finances, you can start to see where those distraction points are, whether they're things, your phone or people in your life. And you can actually say, well, how can I reduce some of these distractions so I can actually work towards my goal? Because I, I think personally, I um, it definitely depends on the people I'm hanging with as mm. to how much money I'm spending and whether I'm actually working towards my goal because they're also quite goal focused. And so we actually just have a, a picnic or something like that. Or if I'm with mm. people that don't really have the same financial goals as me, and then it's just sort of spend all the money and I get completely influenced by their behavior. Yeah. And I guess, Kate, to that point, and in the book, I make this same point. You're not going to cut the people out of your life no. <laughs> that are financially distracting to you because that's just cold. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but you might minimise the effects of them by either where you go to interact with them or putting other people in place, which you sound like you've done, that will counteract the effects of those people that perhaps encourage you to mm. spend more readily than you might want to otherwise. Mm. So having a variety of different people in your life that have different sort of money personalities and money types and money environments. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also being able to talk about it, to have those conversations where you can say to people, you know, I'd love to come out with you, but what these money goals that are really important to me. So going and um, window shopping Saturday mornings, probably not going to work for me, but I would mm. love to hang out with you. So how about we do this instead? Yeah. Um, and being willing to go there um, and have those conversations. You know, if you've had a big night, you'll say to people, oh, I've had a big night. I don't want to go away. I need to go and have bacon and eggs, for example. So you're willing to go there <laughs> if it's because you're tired, but why can't we go there if it's because we want to protect our finances? Mm. No, I think even just COVID's been quite a good exercise in that because we've actually... Yeah we haven't been going out for these social functions anymore. So any catch up we do is usually 
at the moment just a walk or a coffee or just a Zoom call. And it's actually, we're realizing, well, we can actually catch up with these people in a less expensive manner. It's so funny you say that. I've had so many conversations with um, people that have either read my book or done my course and they've said, Rick, COVID's kind of saving me money at the moment. And it's not because my income's a bit lower, but at the same time, my expenses are so much lower because I'm not mm. traveling, I'm not socializing, I'm not traveling. <laughs> so it's a really curious time. Mm. Well, in the middle of your book, I got to admit, I'm a bit of a sucker when it comes to having a good old fashioned table. And uh, in, the, in the very middle of your book, you and me both, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> that you've you've outlined four money types, right? And I sat mm. down with my wife the other day, and she well, she le- leaned over my shoulder and she said, "Yep, you're the creator." And just for people <laughs> that, um, and it, it, it works. Um, I encourage you when you get the book to have a look at this table. It's it's fantastic. So, just some of the characteristics of someone that's a creator with their financial attitude. They imagine it, create it, manifest it, and visualize it. And my money mantra, which I thought would be pretty funny, is if I can dream it, I can do it. I manifest my own success. And I felt like this is a really neat way to, um, and, it, and it kind of fitted me down to a T, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm normally a bit sceptical of these things, but maybe you can provide a bit of an overview of the different money types and, and it kind of anything that maybe resonated with you and maybe your money type. Yeah, absolutely. So because we don't have scientists following us around, um, checking how we innately behave with money and because we I don't think we're great at self-reflection with money um, I've created these four different personalities and I do think most of us are a hybrid of one of the four Mm. that we have a lesser and a stronger Um, so there's the worker that are all about earning it and doing it Um, this they're the most pragmatic of the money types um, the creator, which is you said, as you are, Owen, which, as you said, it's all about words like manifesting and mantras are going to be things that you really <laughs> resonate with. Um, you're the most idealistic of the money types. Mm. Uh, the discerner. So they're probably uh, the most judgmental. And I say intellectual, but I'm not saying that it's necessarily university smart. You could be street smart or book smart. Um, and for them, it's about ideation um, and thinking your way and thinking differently. Um, and the relator is the final one, the most empathetic of the money type, the one most at risk of putting their own finances at risk because they're going to rescue mm. others. And they're all about accumulating and collaborating and networking. Um, and it's really funny when you said uh, that you looked at the creator and just get it. Uh, because what you'll know if you if one resonates with you, um, and it's interesting the number of people that said, oh, I'm that. But then just as interestingly has been the number of people that say, but I just think this one's wrong. Um, <laughs> and what all that means is it's not wrong. It's just not wrong for you. Uh, sorry, it's just not right for you. And uh, Rod, who's the my co-founder at Thinkers Inc., which is a preschool that I own, actually grabbed me when he did a pre-read and he goes, oh, Mel, I just need to think you need to relook at the creator because that's just wrong. I just <laughs> don't think that's right. <laughs> I went, oh, honey, it's right. It's you're just not a creator. <laughs> and the part of the reason why I think it works is one, it's understanding who you are and how you innately behave, understanding the strengths of your money type. And some of us 
absolutely believe that we don't have money strength, but we do. Um, I, I can speed read. I didn't realise I could speed read. I just can. Um, and it wasn't until people would pick it up that I realised, oh, okay, I read it you know, five times the pace of a normal person. So your money strengths are strengths that you just think everyone has and they actually don't. So it's about amplifying those strengths and realising how to harness them as well as minimising the weaknesses in your behaviour. So, for example, I'm a discerner um, and I absolutely have the ability when I'm stressed to overthink um, to have paralysis by analysis, um, particularly if there's an emotional tie to a decision, um, mm. I will struggle with that. I just want everything nice and neat and <laughs> black and white. Um, but my strengths are I will always have a plan A, B, C, D, E, which in business or in with my finances is absolutely that ability to run those strategies and to have backup plans is fantastic. But, but another weakness can be, I don't want to do what everyone else is doing, uh, which can be a strength, but it also can be, I won't do it just because. Mm. <laughs> I'm highly judgmental. <laughs> but the strength and the weakness, I think, of these types are when you do it with your partner, whether that's in business or, if, or peer groups or family or in relationships, because you might think your partner's doing money wrong. And particularly if Rod, uh, who I just talked about, I believe he's in relationship with a creator and he'll tell me, he goes, oh, he's just, just making, he's doing it wrong. <laughs> and he's not, he's just not doing it how Rod would do it. Mm. Um, and same with my hubby and I, he's a worker. He perpetually frustrates me with his inability to do anything but personal exertion. But, I'm actually now comfortable with that. I just don't let him manage our finances and make investing decisions because he would feel safer. It was all just cash in the bank mm. or mortgage paid off and that was it. So, but together we can sit down and with the strengths of our different money types, harness that really beautifully so that our personal finances, we both feel safe, but we are both building something we feel comfortable with. And neither of us will feel 100% happy because it's a compromise, but it's something that we're both happy with. And the same with business. So Rod is a relator money type and a discerner. Um, and I initially would be so frustrated with his just wanting to chat. <laughs> but I've worked out that the relational side of business is just as important as the finance side of business to him. So, and it's why he now is in charge of our people because he's just so good at it. Um, whereas he put rules in place around, I can't say no to decisions in the business. I can say, what about? I can offer other suggestions because it would be really easy for me to steamroll him and go, no, nope, we're not doing that. No, nope, we're doing that. I've got this. Here's my plan A to E and just push it through. Um, so by him doing that, he's harnessing the power of my discerner money type by making me work harder and actually come up with better solutions. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, um, I believe if you, if you harness your money story and rewrite that, get the, um, 
don't just have a default money environment, but curate one and have developed financial habits that are right for your money type, then money can actually be something that is like a financial riptide that just pulls you along um, rather than something that we're perpetually frustrated with. And I'm really excited about it because obviously because I've seen it work <laughs> over and over again. Yeah, and I, and there's BuzzFeed quizzes for everything nowadays, but I've I mm-hmm. don't think I've seen any sort of money type uh, quiz out there. There's might be like um, like what sort of who are you in like which movie character or like how wealthy are you in the, your past life? But there's mm. nothing about. Or what um, sex in the city money carrot type are you or whatever? They yeah. seem to be a bit cutesy. So. Yeah, but nothing that's actually asking you to have sort of a hard look at yourself and, and look at your strengths as well as your weaknesses and how does that impact you? Because a lot of people do, like, I mean, I, I personally did the quiz and I came out as the worker, which ah. surprised me. Um, mm. I, I was quite surprised by that. Um, but then I was having a look through the um, the weaknesses and one was like very rigid w- rule follower and I'm that kind of fits me to a T. I'm very uncomfortable when anyone jaywalks and ah. seemingly most of my family do. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, and I'm Kate. always like, yeah. I'm, and um, But the other one was um, unwilling to part with large cash buffers. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's actually something that I, I found because I think um, during this past year with so many changes um, and, I mean, I was made redundant earlier in the year and I think my mindset's really started to change on that I need a larger emergency fund. And I didn't really know where that came from because it wasn't really, it definitely wasn't Owen because he's probably the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, and it definitely wasn't my family. So I was like, and I was, it was interesting reading that and just reflecting and like, oh, that actually might be coming from somewhere like just sort of deeper down in terms of that money personality that somehow I think I need a larger emergency fund now because it's, I've gone for a stressful situation. Yeah. Mm. And Kate, I think with that, again, it's, that, it's actually a strength because you've built that buffer, but where it becomes a weakness is where you can't see an end to that buffer, mm. where you, for you, it's just, I just need to work and hoard, work and hoard, and that's where I'll feel safe. Yeah. But for a worker, it's about understanding, all right, what's the cash figure that makes me have sleep at night factor? And then I'll leave that there because that's going to make me feel safe. And then I'll um, and then I'll invest or I'll start to free up the rest. Um, mm. My husband was exactly that. Um, and he's, what you're describing is so him. <laughs> he's a worker. <laughs> so it's, it's fascinating to hear you say all those things. Mm. Yeah, and I, it's just it's something quite new, and I've it's only started to emerge this year. And I was I was just sort of reading it, definitely made me think. And I think it's sort of yeah, get it as you say, getting to that point where you go, how much is enough as an emergency mm-hmm. cash buffer, and at what point should I stop hoarding and actually um, invest or do other things with my money? Because I, I mean, up until this year, I've been quite a high risk investor, and suddenly this year it's changed. Yeah, which is absolutely understandable. But that's mm. when I think a lot of us have gone to the basement behaviours in the language of Gallup strength of our money types We've we've because that makes us feel safe. So for me, um, when COVID first hit, I was paralysis by analysis, 50 different theories, mm. in, like 50 different strategies, <laughs> working, you know, just I, I almost couldn't sleep because my mind just wouldn't stop. 
Um, so it's then going, okay, well, how can I harness this for good <laughs> rather than having it be a self-destructive thing? Mm. Um, and so for me, that was looking at, okay, well, the share market's crashing. What do I believe about that? And let's run those theories for that instead and maybe do some investing there. So it's a, it is about understanding the weaknesses when they present themselves. Going, oh, mm. hi. Right. <laughs> what are we going to do with you? Yeah. I, I'll go with it. I've got another question for you, um, which is mm. along those lines, Mel, which is... Um, I guess not just necessarily dealing with ourselves, but also with the people around us. And at the back of the book, uh, you touch on something which is, um, I guess, pretty near to my heart too and and something that I've experienced, um, which is addiction. So Mm. having people in your life that have some type of addiction or a vice, if you like, um, obviously we talk about these and we talk about like drug addictions, we talk about substance abuse, we talk about many different things, gambling, what have you. But in the back of the book, you talk about how, I guess, compulsions and addictions can impact your life. And I think this is something that not enough, not enough experts talk about because they're just almost too sensitive or they're worried about the backlash from it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk us through a bit about, you know, what is, I guess, a financial addiction and some of the steps people can can take either for themselves or for other people to get back control? Yeah, absolutely. So the last couple of chapters are about stresses and sabotage, but also addictions and compulsions. Um, And it was really important for me to write those two chapters because what I know is that stress and sabotage, which is a different, different than addictions and compulsions, can undo all of the good work that you've done with your finances. So it was really important for me to recognise that and to say, right, let's put a plan in place for this. Let's look at when those inflection points happen and let's put a plan in place for it. But I also wanted to acknowledge addictions and compulsions because I'm talking in the book about money stories and money environments and how we innately behave. And I didn't want someone reading the book to put down an addictive behaviour as how they innately behaved or the money story they were given and to kind of think that that's what I was talking about when I absolutely am not. Um, So like you, uh, Owen, I've got a family history of addictions and compulsions. We've got everything in my family history from drug addiction and alcohol addiction um, as well as... uh, Um, eating and working and you know almost name it and we have it it's fantastic Mm. so I know personally that those compulsions are something that I need to manage in my life Um, particularly as someone I know when we first started talking I mentioned um, that I had childhood traumas and what I do suffer from and I've been clinically diagnosed so I don't say it glibly Um, is PTSD from it and I know how that um, how that affects my finances and it does so what I wanted to do is acknowledge in the book that that is a thing that it's real that people aren't imagining it and that it can play it in our finances in a way that's absolutely destructive Um, whether that is with me it was never an addictive behavior but it was compulsive where it was working and hustling and spending. So I would get caught in this sabotage cycle. 
But for others, it is um, addictive shopping. It's addictive gambling. And what the stats are telling us is that this is on a, in the, on a rise, on the rise in our society. Mm. Um, and what we want to do is acknowledge it and to tell people, and what I've suggested all the way through that chapter is that people seek help um, through a financial counsellor and a therapist. It's the only way. Um, that's not the sort of thing that you can fix by looking at financial habits. That's the deeper work to realise and understand why that addiction is there and to get serious help with that. And I've put um, phone numbers and um, where to go for help for that. But mm. my concern during, the, like, during this time is what we know from the stats, over 2 million people grabbed money out of super the first time, that 10 grand, 63% spent it on discretionary spending. And for guys, the number one thing that they spent it on was online gambling. And for me, not all of that online gambling would have been addictive, but some of it would have been. And that, for me, is just heartbreaking Hmm. uh, to know that this is occurring. Um, So in there, I do put the signs to look out for. So, So... There are, um, I talk about research uh, that's been done on other addictive disorders and I talk about from a shopping point of view, what are the different steps to look for to know if this is something potentially you're at risk of and then to seek help. Because, you know, there's books like Shopaholic and movies of the same name and they make it seem cute and funny, but it's Mm. actually not. (laughs) And there's a difference between bringing um, bags home and hiding them from your partner or having a flutter at the races and addiction. So I really wanted to um, make sure that there was a chapter on it in the book and to acknowledge that this is a real thing that we need people to get um, help for. And it's certainly something that I've sought help for in my own life, which is what I acknowledge in the book. And I think that's the part of putting myself in the book that I really struggled with, but I thought if I am telling people to share their money stories, if I'm talking about addictions and compulsions and stress and sabotage and money types, you can talk about it from an intellectual point of view, but unless I tell my story and my experience, then I feel like it's theory versus the transformational change that hopefully Mm. it will have. Mm. You talked about... At the top of the show, Mel, you talked about shame and you mm. brought in the quote there. And I think um, shame is probably the, the, the key word in a lot of this type of thing. And I think once you realise that there is no shame in being yourself and no shame in acknowledging your weaknesses and strengths, um, that's where the true power of, I guess, just being open with other people can come in. And I think there's no better example of what you're trying to illustrate in your book than this conversation because for example, if we, if, if, if we give someone the 50, 30, 20 budget and we, we know that they have a gambling addiction or they have some type mm. of addiction, that 50, 30, 20 budget is not going to do a thing. No. Right? no. And so that's, I think that's the crux of your book. If I could be so, I guess, shallow in my overview <laughs> of it, it would, be, it would be that you're trying to get to, you know, the why. Why yeah. do you have this? 
Absolutely. Brought this forward. And it's only by bringing that to the fore that people can truly understand who they are and how their finances interact with their personality environment, like you said. Absolutely. Um, I don't think there's many finance books that quote Carl Jung um, or that start with a Brene Brown quote around what we know matters, but who we are matters more. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. And I think part of it is we might be feeling shame for behaviour when we actually don't realise that modern society is preying on the tendencies that we have and our lack of self-control and our money stories. Um, And there's no greater example of that than currently with digitised payments, where the one thing we have seen, a micro-trend as a result of COVID, is the explosion of buy now, pay later, Um, more people using credit and people reluctant to use cash because or shops unwilling to take cash because they're worried the virus will transmit. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we know is that, that um, digitised payments and credit do not activate the pain region in our brain in the same way that cash does. It doesn't have that sensory reaction. Mm-hmm. So research shows that we spend up to and exceeding more than 100% more when we use uh, credit. And my suspicion is we buy now, pay later, it will be more than that because you're slicing the payments up. So I'm thinking I'm spending 20 bucks instead of 100 bucks. So it's about then manufacturing that money environment that can cause us pain to to counter the effects of our modern society. But if we don't realise that, and if we're just perpetually beating ourselves up and feeling that shame because we can't control ourselves, then that's what I want to counteract in the book. That's why I want to have these conversations to say, hey, Maybe modern society is actually setting us up for failure. Mm. Um, maybe the financial, uh, the rules that we've held aren't going to work now. So maybe it's about understanding who we are and setting up something right for us. Yeah, and it's almost like everything that we did in the past, it, it sort of goes out the window now because the systems, like buy now, pay later, 20 years ago, no finance personal finance book would even touch on that. It no. didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, lay by, I, I guess, but it just what definitely not the same thing. Um, and then um, just tap and go everything. It's just so easy nowadays. So it's sort of, we need to sort of, as you said, start from scratch and actually think about how we can deal with our money in this modern age. Absolutely. Yep. And I believe it starts with understanding who you are and then setting up the, the system that's right for you and that will protect you as you move towards those goals that you are excited about. Mm. Now, Mel, if people want to learn more about you and do the money quiz themselves and maybe have a look at the book, where should they go? Um, So I would encourage you to buy it from wherever your gorgeous local bookseller is. Um, I know everyone from Kmart to Big W to Booktopia to Berklow and Readings has it, which is exciting. (laughs) Quite literally everywhere, which is really amazing. Um, Or you can jump on to uh, melissabrown.com.au. There's an E on the end of my name and you can find out more about the book and the courses that I run and different things there. Mm. Wonderful. We'll we'll make sure to include those links in the show notes as well so people can get their hands on the book. Yeah, I might just just reinforce that um, COVID's a good chance to read a book. It's a good chance to learn about yourself. And uh, Mel, I haven't come across a book 
that tries to tackle some of these big issues so profoundly. So if you do have time, you are a reader, go out and get the book. Uh, it's fantastic. Support your local bookstore, support Mel. Um, it's a really good book. It will be eye opening for you. So we'll put f- full links in the show notes so you can access um, a cop- uh, get a copy of it, I should say. But Mel, um, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. So uh, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Mel. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit Get Started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest, and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no-obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.